I had, I had a patient on the trach with a ventilator and I was kind of freaked out by it because the patient was coughing. Eyes turned red and water. I didn't know what to do. I don't know how to suction. I was just uh, sitting in that room thinking like, shit, what did I get myself into? Time to go get the nurse to find out how to do this. I was literally shocked. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told him, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. I swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my fan, they can't eat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cup of Nurses show. Here with your host, Peter and Matt. This is a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nursing topics, one conversation at a time. We don't sugar co-information. We don't gloss over tough issues. We face them head on, debate them with the subject at hand, and we let our listeners create their own opinion about the subject. So thank you everyone for tuning in on this awesome day. If you guys find value in this podcast, please give it a five-star like, comment, subscribe. That is what motivates us. It boosts us on algorithm, and this is why we keep on producing this high-quality content. For anything Cup of Nurses related, you'll find it on cupofnurses.com as far as show notes. If you want something more related to consciousness, self-awareness, positivity, check out we are frontlinewarriors.com, as well as the merch that are on both sites. Peter's wearing the, the fratty nurse shirt. I'm wearing the new design from Cup of Nurses here that were established in 2017. It's been a long journey. It's already 2022, baby. Anyways, and then also this big app that we're working on, Pronto. It is in the works where we're trying to innovate healthcare employment for the better by creating a job market for all the nurses, all the healthcare professionals, and bridge the gap and making it easier to start your travel nursing contract or get a permanent position. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Pete, how you doing? I'm doing great. We have another nursing jam-packed episode. Today we're going to talk about ventilator settings. Not every nurse works directly and daily with a ventilator, but most emergency situations usually require a ventilator if a patient is going to respiratory address, arrest, they're coding. Uh, ventilator settings are really good to know, at least, the, at least the basics. And for all you ICU nurses and possibly respiratory therapists out there, we're going to dive a little bit deep into the settings and just how to navigate and work the actual ventilator to actually understand how it functions and what it actually does. So ventilators if- are always kind of scary. Like, I don't know. I remember when I was first coming out of nursing school as a new grad, ventilators were a little bit always hard to understand for me with all like the pressures and the mode because when you look at a ventilator and you're not accustomed to it because they do teach you a little bit about it in nursing school, but I feel like outside of nursing school when you're actually in the workplace and doing these things, ventilators are something that you're more involved in, more involved than you than you think you are. And it's a little bit overwhelming as a new grad when you come into a room, especially like if you're working at ICU or something something in that, in that matter, and you just see this screen that's making your patient breathe, that's basically having them survive, and it's just a bunch of numbers, and each number stands for something else. So it could be like a little bit overwhelming, but we're gonna try and simplify it all for you today. Especially when I had my first day on the unit mm-hmm. as a clinical uh, student nurse, that is the first patient I had. I had a patient on the trach with a ventilator, and I was kind of freaked out by it because the patient was coughing. Eyes turned red and water. I didn't know what to do. I don't know how to suction. I was just uh, sitting in that room thinking like, shit, what did I get myself into? Time to go get the nurse to find out how to do this. I was literally shocked. But Mm. if you're an ICU nurse, it's going to be very helpful because we're going to go into a deep dive into ventilators. But I think anybody listening is great to understand like FiO2, the different forms of oxygen, how your patient's receiving it, what's happening on a physiological level that we're going to dive into. Mm. 
Yeah, so mechanical ventilation, that's that's an invasive sort of uh, ventilation. Of course, you have some other things that are non-invasive that also help with ventilation and oxygenation, like your CPAP, like your BiPAPs, your face mask, your non-breathers, all those things. But today, we're going to talk more about the actual ventilator. So that's like the more invasive. That's like your, your full life support, uh, you could say. So why would we use mechanical ventilation? Majority of the time, you're going to see somebody on mechanical ventilator that's usually post-op. If we're prepping somebody for surgery, and if it's like an extent of surgery, we're going to have to mechanically vent them. Um, some other issues that, that might arise that require mechanical ventilation is going to be respiratory failure, respiratory arrest, failure to oxygenate. So if measures like, let's just say your patient walks in and they require five liters of nasal, nasal cannula, six liters, and then throughout the night they, they start to uh, progress in, in the wrong direction. So we go from five liters to like a face mask to a non-rebreather. Now they need, need a CPAP or a BiPAP and their oxygenation is still not appropriate. They're still standing like 85, 86. You guys decide to draw an ABG and the ABG numbers are off. Your next step is going to be to invasively ventilate somebody. So put them on the ventilator. Call that RRT. Get us over there. <laughs> yeah, because you can't, if someone's not being sustained on a BiPAP, you can't just pray and hope for the best and hopefully it changes. It doesn't work like that. You got to unfortunately intubate them and figure out what's the underlying issue and then go from there. Uh, another, another one. Another I was going to say, it's also good is if you have a patient on uh, BiPAP and they're like that for three, four days and they look like shit, they're breathing hard with their you know, um, stomach, you see the ribs expanding, they're getting worked up. That patient has a high likelihood of not getting better. They're go only going to decompensate. So sometimes there's a benefit to intubate them for three, four days, get their ventilation, get their airway back where it's supposed to. And as far as uh, CO2, pH and all that saturation, and then getting, getting them off the uh, ventilator. Yeah. It's almost like you're intubating them to prevent them from like coding because people could go for a long time with dyspneic and struggling to breathe they go for a long time because the, the body can is almost limitless when it comes to survival but we don't want them to tire out and then just go respiratory rest so a lot of times we <clears throat> intubate them before they emergently to get intubated another reason why you want to intubate somebody is air protection somebody could come in having an allergic reaction that's closing out their their throat muscles and they, they can't breathe and you don't want, you know, because once um, the muscles and like your throat swell up, you're not gonna be able to, to get air in. So we intubate them in that way. Or for example, someone's aspirating, we can intubate that to prevent aspiration pneumonia. Yeah, um, and then also um, concerning findings. So if someone's looks like they're struggling to breathe, the, the best test you could do is in an, an ABG. So your ABG is going to show you the pH, your oxygen status, the CO2 and your bicarb. So you're actually going to see how efficient your, your patient is actually oxygenating and ventilating the blood, you could say. The, telling the oxygen and ventilating the, the body, but then the blood is going to have a direct response to how well they are. And if the numbers are poor, for example, the pH is less than 7.25 or the CO2 is, is high, it's greater than 50, respiratory rate is, is above 30s, and their O2 sets in the low 80s, um, those are probably some indicators that, hey, we probably have to intubate this person because they're not gonna be able to stay in this way for much longer and you yeah. want to avoid a code of course you want to avoid a code and also keep in mind that these numbers are not always definite it's a case per case basis for example if you have someone with copd naturally they're going to have a higher co2 it could be up to the range of 50s which is chronically hypercapnic for some patients that have co2s above 50s under blood gas they're probably like somnolent very out of it they could barely wake up for a copd patient that's their baseline mm. and if you're a smoker so Case by case, it's not definite. 
but yeah above 50 we're trying to find out what's what's the underlying cause of uh this high co2 yeah when you talk about respiratory mechanics and the ventilation uh process so normal respiratory mechanics uh, normally inspiration generates a negative intrapleural pressure which then creates a pressure gradient between the atmosphere and the alveoli resulting in the airflow so that that's how you actually breathe and how oxygen and the gases gets diffused through the alveoli and actually reach the blood but in mechanical ventilation it's a little bit different because in mechanical ventilation the pressure gradient results from increased positive pressure in the airways so this, we require a peep to keep our alveoli functioning and able to promote that gas exchange so it's a little bit a ventilator isn't exactly like taking a normal breath but it's as close as, as we can get and whoever created a ventilator figured out a lot of information about these pressures and kind of nail, nailed them down that we could artificially uh, change these pressures and actually help somebody breathe that's how you got the ventilator so it's, it's a little bit a lot of people say that a ventilator is like is like breathing normally it's, it's similar to breathing normally but it's not because you don't have all these exact pressures and all these exact numbers that you would breathe normally you have to kind of uh, makeshift these pressures if you're getting a breath from a, from a machine it's a little bit yeah. interesting and just to kind of visualize this like at the lowest level past the mouth lungs bronchial we have these alveoli air sacs and these air sacs are are wrapped around with capillaries so as you're taking in this breath and changing the pressure in your intrapleural space you're helping facilitate that gas exchange where co2 is leaving and how it happens is you have the alveoli and you have blood vessels that are so open where they allow oxygen just to perfuse through this gradient and as that's happening co2 is leaving the um, alveoli is being collected there. Then as soon as you're exhaling, the diaphragm is moving up. The pressure is changing, helping facilitate the CO2 to exhale. Mm. It's it's beautiful how the process works and how we uh, figured it down. Just like, the, yeah, we talked about yesterday when we were uh, doing these show notes, like who the hell made up oxygen? Like how of a life-saving tool it is just to help someone increase their FiO2 and their SATs and all of a sudden they're doing better. Mm. And they're not passing away from such a small uh, thing that could be addressed nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. So when you take a look at the ventilator, you're going to see, a f or the ventilator screen, you're going to see a few different numbers and, and some words. So first we want to go over is a peak air pressure. So what is the peak air pressure? So peak air pressure simply means that the amount of pressure needed to actually push the air and the volume into the, the patient's lungs. So this is a pressure that the ventilator has to push through to deliver the X amount of volume. And I know we're gonna go into alarms later on, but the, the peak air pressure, like your peak alarms, that's usually, they usually occur when there's some kind of resistance going on into your patient because these, these ventilators have an upper upper limit and lower limit set. So when you hit these upper limits, the ventilator alarms and, show you, and tells you, hey, something's going on because for some reason, this patient's pressure whatever it was it was before now it's high now for some reason the ventilator is working harder to get past this this higher pressure that's probably one of your, your most important ones another one yeah i was just gonna say and this peak uh peak area pressure just like Pete mentioned goes into three different little categories which is all going to affect that resistance of the ventilator trying to push air in so you have the resistive pressure the elastic pressure and the uh, end expiratory pressure aka peep mm. so the resistive pressure is just the, the circuit pressure that's being resistance to the airflow. So you have the mechanical ventilated patient, and that's kind of measuring the resistance that this ventilator circuit is pushing into the uh, endotracheal tube or into your uh, trach, depending on what the patient has. Mm. 
then you have this elastic pressure. So think about this elastic uh, pressure as far as like the lungs recoil is how compliant is my lung. If you have a smoker, if you have COPD, that's changing the elastic physiology of the lung, which makes it uh, harder. If you have COPD, you're probably gonna have higher peak pressures already because there's gonna be a lot more resistance in these uh, in the flow of oxygen. Same thing with uh, somebody with uh, like lung stiffness in cases of pulmonary fibrosis. You have the stiffness, the scarring of these tissues, making them less elastic and less uh, essentially compliant. Mm. And this is where low compliance comes in and where a respiratory has to change settings to make sure that we keep the peak pressures stable because essentially we're trying to prevent a ventilator injury and prevent like a pneumothorax from happening. Mm. Yeah. Next one is the end expiratory pressure. So normally the end expiratory pressure in alveoli is the same as your atmospheric pressure, but what you might hear most commonly is like PEEP, which is positive end expiratory pressure. So we apply PEEP to leave a little bit of air still and pressure on the alveoli to promote gas exchange. So a lot of times in an ventilator that's always gonna be positive because normally um, it's in a lower end, but in a hospital as you're gonna see a vent, it's gonna be like normally a PEEP of five. And anything really above five shows that the patient is having a, having a hard time oxygenating and, and ventilating their, their body. So it just promotes gas exchange while we add PEEP to the, to the patient. And also this is why some patients go on uh, BiPAP, which is less invasive, but we still give them the artificial PEEP to help those alveoli expand and help facilitate oxygenation. Mm, yeah. The next one is pretty similar to PEEP. It's called uh, intrinsic PEEP. So immediately before a breath, uh, the, to kind of test for this, because it's a little bit tricky, we don't do it very often, but uh, to test the intrinsic PEEP or the auto PEEP, so immediately before it, a patient breaths, so expiratory pressure or expiratory port is closed for two seconds. Flow ceases, eliminating resistance pressure. The resulting pressure reflects alveolar pressure at the end of expiration. So the pressure at the at the end of expiration is your intrinsic PEEP, and that's what your what your body holds in. And but the issue is, if the intrinsic PEEP is high, uh, it's bad. It's bad for the patient because it's not going to allow to fully expand and inflate the lungs. So if you have a high intrinsic PEEP, it could be scary because there's something else underlining, underlining going on that's either increasing the inspiratory effort or work of breathing, or it's going to result in a decreased uh, venous return or a decreased cardiac output. So if, the, if you're testing your intrinsic PEEP for some reason and it's high, it's not a good sign. It means there's not enough gas exchange going on and your patient isn't going to oxygenate and ventilate properly. And then also if you have a patient that's requiring more and more PEEP to help with the compliance and the opening of the alveoli as you're increasing uh, peep think about your lungs and where they're sitting in the vasculature close to the heart so as you're squeezing and putting more pressure on the lungs you're also tightening up and squeezing the the venous return to the heart what happens there is you might develop hypotension because of high peep so in the icu setting we have decreased cardiac output we got to put patients on oppressors we don't necessarily know if it's always from PEEP. It could be a multitude of things from a high PEEP or even the sedation that they're getting on propofol versus we're dropping their blood pressures. We need to artificially increase it. That's a very good point. Very good point. Just a quick error management tip. when <clears throat> If you have a patient intubator or even you could say um, on a trach as well, if you're putting them on a vent or maybe they had the passive mirror, mirror, mirror valve in when, when they're, they're trached and you're bringing them back on a full support of the vent, make sure the trach is cuffed. You need, a, you need a fully cuffed trach to make sure that the patient gets the exact amount of air. That took me a while to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Think of like the cuff as like the portion 
around the actual cannula itself that, that, that holds it. So you usually have, you have like a balloon there and it's deflated. You can easily see stuff getting getting passed down and, and through there. But if it's fully inflated and, and it's the pressure gradient is nice and it's firm, you're not gonna be able to push stuff down through there. So always always make sure that that is um, always always fully inflated and cuffed. If you're not sure or you're scared of, of inflating yourself, you can always talk to your RT. I know um, when I was starting out, I was a new grad, I would never touch them. And at my old job, we were able to inflate them with like a few cc's of, of, of air, but I was very scared of inflating them because I was scared of popping it. So I would always call respiratory therapy, but now I just I just pop it and I add like one ml of air. Because sometimes you have a patient that for some reason they're having like a weird sound come out of their ET tube or their, or their trach and trying to figure out what it is. It's like a, like a, like a, like some weird sound. Like it's not, not normally there or that. Yeah. And you try to figure out troubleshoot. Hey, like what's or gurgling? And you're trying to figure out, hey, what's causing this? What's why is it doing this? It could just be just a little bit of air because it does lose air sometimes. It's called a cuff leak. Sometimes the air does leak. So just always inflate with like half an ml if you're real scared or one ml. You can always do like half an ml at a time, one ml at a time. But if you're putting like three, four, and you're on your fifth one, you should probably not put that fifth Great ml trauma. in there. Yeah, because you don't want to pop it or whatever. Then in that case, just call somebody and ask, hey, my um. My patients have a weird sound come out of their their uh, their ET tube. Can you come take a look at it? And they'll come take a look at it. And sometimes it might be not only a sound; it could be literally looking at the vents and seeing that your tidal volumes are low, which we'll talk more about. So, if you think about it, you have this cuff that's preventing air escaping. If you're pushing air into the lungs and there's a leak, you're losing the volume of oxygen that's going to be in that space. So, as that's happening, you're gonna look at your vent. You're gonna be like, damn. I'm losing tidal volumes. Well, why? Why is that happening? All you do is just put in that CC like Pete said. All of a sudden, your tidal volumes look 450. They look great again. And that's uh, the air leak there. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, looking back at the ventilator, once again, you see a lot of numbers. Which one of those are actual adjustable? And which one of those are kind of standard there that it's basically a a number that, that you get based off a system test or just based off the, the functionality of the patient? So, the first one's going to be your tidal volume. Very important one. So, your total volume is going to be the amount of air that's moving in and out of the patient's lungs. You could set this to any number, but the average is uh, about seven millimeters per kilogram of body weight. Uh, for an average male, it's about 500 mLs. For average female, it's about 400. Sometimes you see our vents at like 350, depending if the person's small, 400. It just depends on a patient's size. And of course, you could adjust those. So if the patient is is hyperoxygenating, if their if their O2 is really high on an ABG, you can always decrease it. Maybe you're having them pull too much volume, or their their CO2 is is still high. So maybe you want to bump that up for like a blow off more. It just depends. That's not the first your first main one is you're gonna troubleshoot is using that. Are we having too much um, too much flow or too too little flow? And with tidal volume comes two things: minute ventilation, which is the amount of volume inhaled and exhaled for for over 60 seconds, the average is about four to six, six liters. So how much air is a patient breathing in and breathing out within a 60 second time frame? Another one is alveoli ventilation. Uh, alveoli ventilation, also abbreviated as VA, is similar to, um, to minute ventilation, but without including the, the dead space. So when you breathe in and you breathe out, there's always uh, some air that is not undergoing a, a gas exchange. So you normally breathe in more oxygen, more air than your lungs could process. So alveoli ventilation is a little bit uh, tighter of a parameter and tighter of, of a number because it does not account for that dead space. It's only the the amount of volume that's actually being worked on and, and exchanged um, in the gas exchange process. And that was a big thing with uh, with C19 patients is they had that VQ mismatch where 
we had all the air going into those part of the lungs, but they weren't uh, perfusing where there was no bl blood exchange. Maybe it could have been like a blood clot or something at a micro level, or we weren't ventilating there and it was um, causing uh, like an obstruction. So a lot, a lot of mismatches there. Uh, yeah, and I feel like we should have mention this right off the rip, off the bat. So mechanical ventilation accounts for two things, ventilation and oxygenation. Ventilation is physically moving the air in and out. Oxygenation is actually taking the oxygen out of the, the air and promoting gas exchange. So those are the two, two ways that our body functions and gets air in and out and oxygen to our, our, our body. And that's what the ventilators ultimately uh, help with. Yes. Did we, did we, we didn't mention that in the beginning, did we? I think that's a good summary just to get a good picture of what we're mm -hmm. actually trying to do. Yeah. So always think ventilation, ventilation and oxygenation is what is responsible for your breathing and for ventilator settings and ventilator controls. And another, another disclaimer in this case is if you're in the ICU or thinking of becoming one, you're like, whoa, this is so much to remember. As an ICU nurse, you should know a general scope of understanding all this, but you're going to have RT, which is going to manage most of this. Let's just say we have a patient that's uh, desetting. Well, on the vent, we're going to maybe increase the FiO2 from 40 to 80%, but then we're going to let respiratory know, like, hey, my patient is not doing well. Let's fix this. Or a doctor is going to know about it. You're not going to manage the vent fully. That's why RT is there. And you have so much other things to worry about as drips, Foley's chest tubes, sedation. So it's a collaborative practice here, but it's good to get this general understanding that we're talking about uh, in this episode. So one more thing with tidal volume is why it's important while we look at it is that if you have a high tidal volume, you, you're you overinflating the lungs, which can cause a pneumo, it can cause damage. But if you're under inflating, you could say if you have a low volume, that, that puts the patient at risk for atelectasis because if you think about it, if you're not putting enough air in, it's not hitting the whole lung space and you're leaving some space that's not getting hit with air and that's going to lead to atelectasis and other problems that could even account for pneumonia or other different kind of uh, lung issues. The next one is frequency rate and that is just the number of respirations that you're programming the vent to take, which is X. It could be 16, 20, 24, sometimes as far as 32. The main thing I see in the ICU why we're programming different frequency rates is based on the city level of the blood. So if the patient is super acidotic, we're going to increase the respiratory rate to blow off the extra CO2 to balance the pH and vice versa. If they're hyper uh, hypocap, no, I don't, don't want to say hypocapnic. If they're hyperventilating, they're breathing too much, we want to decrease that to uh, get the uh, CO2 back into the system but that doesn't happen as often because usually what happens is actually anxiety and things like that. You see less of that. It's more of trying to prevent the CO2 from happening in these critical patients. Yeah, usually if your patient is blowing off too much CO2, it's probably because you don't have them stated enough and they're initiating their own breaths. But if your patient is holding on to CO2, it probably means that you need to increase the respiratory rate to blow that off. Yes. Another key thing to always look at is the FiO2. It's the fraction of inspired oxygen. It is literally the concentration of oxygen that's being given to the patient and inhaled by the patient. If you're on room air, like Matt and I are here, that's about 20%, 21%. And it's interesting, interesting to know that, for example, a patient comes in and you put them on a one liter of uh, nasal cannula or a face mask or whatever you're choosing, that's going to bump up the FIL2 from 21% to 24%. And every liter after that is going to increase the FIL2 by 4%. So 
If you put on two liters, technically they're burning then 28%. If you put them on three liters, that's 32%. So keep that in mind. It's very interesting that I, that I just found out four per, one liter equals to basically 4%. Uh, for patients with severe hypoxemia, an FIO2 over 100% may be required when mechanically ventilating the, the patient. And that's, if you use somebody at 100% and they're at 100% for a long time, that means they're doing really, 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 really bad. Because that means we're giving them, you could say, five times more of the concentration of oxygen that they that they need to survive. Because if we're bringing at, at like 20, 21%, and now they're 100%, that's five times more than, than there is in the real world, you, you could say. So that's scary. That means a patient is not going is not in a good situation and we really got to figure out what's going on and maybe we might even have to talk to family and kind of think about them not being able to come off the ventilator yeah and they're getting they're getting profusely worse yeah. and we also look at fio2 when we're trying to wean the patient so if the patient is on 80 percent fio2 we probably don't want to do a breathing trial to get them off the vent because they're requiring such a high amount of concentrated oxygen Normally what we do is, and we'll, we could go later into this once we talk about everything, but when it comes to FIO2 specifically, we want it to be at least 40%. 50% I have seen in some cases when we're trying to kind of hail Mary things to get them going, but 40% is, a, is an ideal number to have them at where we could finally say, okay, we're going to turn off the sedation. Let's, let's do a CPAP trial or a pressure support trial to get them off the ventilator and see how they do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you're trying to get them off the vent because there's a lot of stuff to account for like there you might look at their event settings and you might take a look at them and be like okay these numbers are low and they look good let's try to take a next step further but then you get those same settings and you have a you could do an abg and it's because those settings are are low or they're ready to be you know you could say they're ready to be put in the next measure if your abg comes back and it looks like garbage don't you probably shouldn't force the activation extubation or force a pressure support trials or or, or start the breathing trials because if you're if you if your pH is like seven point two five and yeah he's on forty percent but his pH seven point two five the the rate's fine at, at at sixteen the PO two is like 80, 82 or, or it's low as well just because those settings look good the ABG looks poor it's probably not a, not a good idea you're setting your, your patient up and yourself for failure because if you're gonna do a pressure support trial or spontaneous breathing trial for too long of a time the patient already has shitty internal numbers even external numbers look good the, sh the internal numbers are more important so if they look shitty don't push the patient because you might just push them over 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 the edge and you put them on pressure support or do a breathing trial for a long time and they might code on you so be careful with that make sure the the internal numbers align with the external readings of your monitors as well yeah then next is going to be the flow rate which is the inspiratory flow rate and that controls how fast tidal volume is delivered to the by the ventilator that's adjusted in Europe from 60 to 120 liters per minute. And this is something that we, as ICU nurses, look at way less. This is more respiratory and a doctor. Uh, but nevertheless, this is an important number to look at to, to understand what's happening with the vent. So if the flow rate is set too low, this can result of a ventilator not being not synchronizing with the patient. And that might increase the patient's work of breathing. Because if you think about it, if you're dumping so much freaking volume of air into there, they're not oxygenating it. Now it's getting sucked back up. That's creating a lot of uh, mismatch. So you always want to adjust the ventilator to the patient and um, and the numbers. And if it's set to high, this can result in like a mean airway pressure decrease. And it's good to note that if your patient has a history of like obstruct like any kind of obstructive diseases, it's always good to have a a longer uh, expiratory time because if you think of a patient has COPD. 
we're always taught and they technically are always in a more of an acidotic state because their CO2 2 is higher. So what you should do is is kind of prolong that expiratory pressure by like a few few seconds just so they can breathe out that extra CO2 because they do have those obstructive diseases that of course affect lung compliance and have them naturally withhold more CO2. Yeah. Uh, along with that goes the IE ratio. That is the ratio of the inspiratory and expiratory uh, cycle. So like I mentioned a minute ago, you want to you wanna have a longer expiratory, expiratory, um, expiratory rate for somebody that is that's obstructive diseases. But naturally, when you exhale, that's longer in seconds than when you inhale. You inhale for a short amount of time than you do exhale. Like when you do your breathing exercises, usually they tell you you inhale for X amount of seconds, and then usually you breathe out for X amount of seconds. But when you breathe out, that's usually you breathe out at a longer time frame than you do breathing in. Yeah, and we're gonna manipulate these numbers on an event depending on what's happening with the patient. For example, with C19, these patients need low tidal volumes because we want to maintain their peak pressures and we also want to help facilitate gas exchange so we're going to play with this ie ratio where there's a longer inspiration time and a lower expiratory time so when you have a lower or longer inspiratory time you're helping to facilitate gas exchange for these patients because they don't have a lot of alveoli or they have a lot of dead spaces and that's why when we turn these patients to the side or do a bath like they have no compliance they drop to like the low 80s and it takes a lot long time for them to require or to um to recoup to get their sats back up yeah interesting how you have to kind of troubleshoot that because when you think of c19 you think of unable to oxygenate poor compliance so you want to have a higher inspiratory pressure so you give them more time to for the gassy change but when you think of like copd you want a longer expiratory because they gotta breathe out that stuff so it's very interesting how you can manipulate the vent for for almost any kind of underlining lung disease or, or lung issue and if you want to adjust these times, it's not only like one setting, like, hey, let's decrease the respiratory rate from 20 to 16. This is like a whole calculation of inspiratory time, expiratory time, tidal volume, the respiratory rate, and the flow rate. So this whole entire, um, all five of these, like, let's just say, um, I want to call them like little mixers. Like, you know, like there's like a, a mixer music mixer dj days dj Day, yeah and you're kind of mixing the mixer up and down so all five of these levers are going to manipulate the ie time for the vent and the patient dj peak pressures over here yeah <laughs> a rather interesting one is sensitivity so this determines how much effort so negative pressure the patient must generate in order to trigger a breath from the machine so think of sensitivity as like a, almost a pacemaker sensitivity so if your ventilator sensitivity is going is going to be responsible for picking up when the patient is actually initiating a, initiating a breath. So when you have a vented patient, not, not every breath is given to them by the, by the ventilator, you could say. Technically, technically it is, but there is room allowed for the patient, patient to breathe on their own. So of course, if they're on paralytics, they can't breathe on their own. But if they're com- comfortably sedated, you might notice that the respiratory rate on a ventilator is set to 12, but the actual respiratory rate is, is 16. Because we wanna, we also wanna promote any kind of breath that the, that the patient makes. Because you want them doing some of the work. That's how you get stronger. If you think about it, that's with everything everything you do. So we want to allow our patients to also breathe on, on their own, initiate that that breath. Because we want them doing some some of the work. Of course, if they're doing too much of the work, it's it's a bad thing because the event settings are set to twelve, and your patient's breathing at twenty four, twenty six. You probably gotta adjust your sedation because you want them to have 
more of a respiratory decline, you could say, on a sedation, so the vent could do, do some of the work. Because the reason why they are on the vent is to help with that respiratory effort. So the sensitivity is going to be set to like negative one, negative two. And once it senses that, that, that little uh, initiation of breathing that the patient is giving, it's going to then push the amount of volume in there. So the patient is never going to, or the patient is rarely going to initiate a breath on, on his, I'm sorry. The patient is going to initiate a breath on its own, but he's never going to fully take in the breath on, the, on their own on full support. So like I said, a patient can initiate the breath, but the volume and the pressure is going to be delivered by the ventilator. So it's so that when a patient takes a breath, he doesn't go, breathes in by himself. He breathes in a little bit, you could say, and then the machine delivers the rest of it. So I can get a little bit confused, a little bit tricky, but when someone's on a ventilator, majority of the time, if we're not weaning or we're not doing breathing trials, no matter what the patient does, we're going to give them the correct volume and a correct pressure. It's just an initiation is the one that we also have to account for because we want them to do like at least a little bit of the stuff. So the next one that we have PEEP and PEEP is a positive pressure that is being pushed into the patient's lung during expiratory and that's helping with the breathing cycle to prevent the closure of the alveoli because the alveoli is where the actual gas exchange is happening. So we're, we're helping that oxygenation to occur. Um, and this is usually indicative of refractory hypoxemia, patients that are going into ARDS, they have high FiO2s and there's nothing that these FiO2s are doing. We're going to increase the PEEP to help with that uh, oxygenation. Uh, and two things when it comes to PEEP and other numbers that we look at are the peak inspiratory pressures called PIP, which is the maximum pressure during inspiration. And that goal is to have it under 35. That is just to prevent the injury of the lung from happening. So once we have the PIP, we also have the plateau pressures. And plateau pressures are a measurement to check lung compliances, just like we talked about the elasticity and everything that's happening. So the goal is to have that under 35 as a number. I'm sorry, for plateau pressures, our goal is to have that under 30. And the way respiratory usually checks, because I don't know how to do it on these vents, and there's so many different vents, is as soon as uh, the patient um, has an inspiration, they press hold and they check the plateau pressure. So those are the, honestly, those are two big numbers I look at. So let's just say Peter and I show up at work. We look at the mode, which we're going to talk about in the, in the episode. Let's see their pressure support, ACVC. Next thing we look at is everything we talked about. What is the rate? What is the tidal volume? What is the PEEP? What is the FiO2? Okay, now we have the general idea of how this vent is operating. Next thing you know, I want to make sure my what's happening with my patient, what are these numbers actually meaning. So if you go over plateau pressures or PIP, you'll kind of see how the compliance is with the ventilator themselves. If plateau pressures or PIP is high, maybe the patient has to be sedated because they're not synchronizing with the vent. Uh, in some cases, the lung compliance is so bad, the RDS is so bad where we have to paralyze these patients just for them to have no respiratory drive and we just let the ventilator do all the work itself. So a lot a lot happens it's not like it's not black and white like hey let's pop this patient on this and just like we said you should just know the general idea of this and then respiratory and the doctors are going to help out with managing the ventilator so with the ventilator the primary controls and the primary modes of it uh, they're going to vary and you're going to be kind of patient specific and we're going to do different settings depending on where your patient is at in their whole uh, ventilator weaning or ventilator control process so volume control is the first one. It's uh, one of the major ones. So this controls the amount of tidal volume someone the patient is, is, is getting. So we dictate how much volume they're getting. 
no matter what the what the pressure is. Um, so so this is a good one. You first want to troubleshoot a patient. It's always good to look at the volume and see if you can adjust that. Uh, but the one negative aspect of using volume control is that um, if the patient has poor lung compliance or bad lung compliance, uh, it could result in high peak pressures. Because remember, you're given a preset amount of volume and patients are going to get the volume no matter what. So the machines are going to push through whatever pressure it has to to give you that volume. Another drawback of that is it could lead to patient ventilator dis, um, dyscrony. Is that how you said that word? Dyscrony? Dyscrony. Dyscrony. Beautiful. So it's giving... <laughs> Yeah, so it's giving that volume. So if a patient were to initiate a breath, it's going to give you that volume no matter what. No matter what. So if the patient is breathing at at twenty, it's going to give you that that like four hundred volume each breath. So it's gonna give you that that twenty times because your patient is initiating and your preset settings are at are at sixteen. So it's gonna give you that sixteen and plus all other four that the patient initiates. So this could lead to that that whole uh, dyssynchrony, which is which is dangerous in the long run because it can cause harm to the patient and not properly es oxygenate especially when you have patients on volume controls as far as like assist control ac and they're not fully snowed and and like this vent is putting in 500 volume every respiratory rate no matter what because it's not pressure control so you have a patient that's freaking getting air pushed in they're trying to breath stack and push against that and it just looks it, they just look like shit mm -hmm. if there's family in the room it just creates a bad scenario because the patient looks like they're suffering. And this is where your critical thinking happens, where you got to snow the patient, sedate to help the vent do the work. Mm. Yeah, next one is pressure control. Uh, very similar to volume control, but instead of taking a volume into account, you're taking a pressure. So you set the machine to give uh, to, to blow through a set amount of pressure. So you blow the air with a set amount of pressure, which, which is good because then you're not risking, um, you could say the higher peak pressures because you're not going off the volume. Volume, you're going off the pressure. So the machine's going to give you this set amount of pressure at each time you breathe or at the set rate, but it's not accounting exactly for the, for the volume. So that it could be set at X amount of pressure, but that pressure could give the patient a volume of 300 or 400 or 350 or 320 or, or 420 depending on the lung compliance so here you're taking full control of the pressure but you're not controlling the volume which is which is the one drawback um, and like i said if you have poor lung compliance it could be an issue because maybe the, per the patient needs 400 of volume with a higher pressure but since you're giving them this lower pressure now they're only getting this 300 of, of volume so those are two two main things that you can control is the volume control and the uh, pressure control Probably I was just going to talk about assist control if you want to go into that. Go so one of the modes that we see often is AC mode. And this is, like we said, the mandatory breath. This is volume control. So we have a set amount of breathing and that's it. Like we said, this doesn't allow the patient to take a spontaneous breath. So originally when the patient gets intubated or maybe fresh from the OR, we might have a patient on assist control because the respiratory drive is completely knocked out. They're not doing anything. We want to best manage the patient. So in order to find out what's happening with the patient, the ventilator is doing all the work. Eventually, when the patient is progressing, we might switch to different vent settings such as SIMV, which we'll talk about. And that's kind of help the patient a little bit with a spontaneous breathing and help them kind of get their um, diaphragm, diaphragm strength back. Here, you're kind of just decompensating the patient because the patient is not doing anything, not even moving the diaphragm and they're usually snowed. Mm. Yeah, so SIMV is very similar. 
uh, like Matt said with the whole breathing. So with SMV, you have the similar settings, but the patient is going to be able to uh, spontaneously breathe on their own. So let's just say, for example, you have an S- a patient in S- SMV mode and their, their rate is set at 12. You could also notice that the patient breathing at, at 16, but you what you might see is a patient not getting full volumes each time. So if your volume is set at 400 with a respiratory rate of 12, then for 12 breaths, that patient is guaranteed 400 of volume. But the patient could be breathing at 16. Those four extra breaths that the patient is doing might not get the 400 because if the patient is breathing spontaneously and on their own with those four and he's only breathing in, in 200 of volume, well, then he's going to have 12 breaths that get 400 of volume and four breaths that get only 200 of volume. And that's like the main difference between SMV and uh, AC is with AC, technically the patient could still uh, initiate a breath. So you can have a patient on a respiratory rate of 12 with assist control and you can see the ventilator still read at 14 or 16. But the major difference is that on assist control, if the rate is set at 12 and the volume is set at 400, and your patient is breathing at 14 or 16, let's just say 16 for example, then that patient is going to be breathing at 16, but he's also going to get 400 of volume with each of one of those breaths, compared to SIMV, where they're guaranteed that 400 with the 12 breaths, and with the extra four, they're breathing on their own. So no matter what the respiratory rate is on assist control, they're going to get that 400 volume no matter what. Because with each breath that the patient overbreathes on the vent and assist control, they're going to get the assisted amount of volume in it. SMV, you're going to not have the assisted amount of volume, but you guarantee that set amount of rate and set amount of volume for that minimum amount of, amount of respirations. That's the, the major one. That's, that's what throws off a lot of people off because when you're kind of like someone that's on AC versus SMV, you're, you could still have 12 respiratory rates for both patients and they could both still be that 16, but the major difference is going to be the, the volumes of those spontaneous and initiated breaths of the patient. What also confused me a lot too, like during the pandemic is when they start playing with these ventilator settings and they go into like AC, PC. So now you have a ventilator setting where you're getting assist control and pressure control. And that completely threw me off because it's like, okay, so what's happening? So it seems like we're creating a mandatory amount of breaths that the patient is getting, which is assist control. But then this patient has such bad lung compliance where you don't want to push in a set a tighter volume so what we do is we sedate these patients we have like a ras of let's just say negative four meaning we can't even wake them up with sternal rubbing usually we gotta like pull their uh fingers or toes to create a pain response to know that they're there and what happens is we set up a little bit of a pressure control or volume control i should say so there's like a set tighter volume that they should hit because with the c19 patients they have such bad lung compliance and plateau pressures is that if you just use one ventilator setting over the other and they're, maybe they're not taking their spontaneous breaths, one, you're going to have a patient that's going to be compliant on the vent for a long time. Or two, if you just do one mode, assist control, you might cause a lung injury because their lung compliance is horrible and you have to just have a set volume control. Yeah, vents are definitely so overwhelming, but just you have to take some time, especially if you're an ICU nurse, and just set some time aside and actually like look into your ventilator understand a little bit about it because the more you understand of it and know what these numbers are responsible for what these alarms are, are going are, are, are going out what they're causing because if you have an alarm it's only going to say high peak pressure it's not going to say hey high peak pressure one 
check the patient, two, check the circuit, three, check the couple. It doesn't tell you the steps to, to follow. You got to kind of troubleshoot yourself and figure out what's actually, what's actually going on. So it helps a lot when you actually know what these numbers mean and how the ventilator settings all work together and what your actual settings are of, of your patient so you, so you know what to change. Because if your patient is at like, a, for example, you'd say volume control and you're telling the, um, the respiratory therapist, hey, to adjust the, the pressures because of this, because of that, you know, maybe you might have to adjust the volume, not necessarily the, the pressure. So you want to kind of figure out, figure out what's actually going on and know how to communicate the, the problems because you don't want to kind of just make stuff up and just confuse the respiratory therapist or confuse yourself. You actually want to know how these things work. Same way when you give your patient medication, like, like beta blockers, you know that, hey, they might decrease your heart rate, they might decrease your blood pressure. Same way when you adjust these settings, hey, if I increase the respiratory rate, that's going to naturally bring on the, the CO2. You got to be able to think through these things, not just change something, see what happens, and then put it back if it, if it made it worse. You can't do that kind of stuff. You don't have that, that kind of amount of time. You can't just you can't just change stuff just willy-nilly because you don't fully understand it because it, it could cause harm to the patient. And I know we're all lucky enough to have respiratory therapists when we work in the ICU or we have somebody on an event, but still, it might take them a few minutes to, to get to you to help you with your emergency. It's, it's, also, it's good for you to know some of the basics so you can maybe actually already troubleshoot, like at least know how to turn up the FiO2 on your patient. That's like one of the key things because if your patient is desanding and they're on 40%, something that an easy fix or easy troubleshooting option you could do in the meantime is bump up from 40% to 80% or to 100% just to, just to find, you some, find you some time because that's like the first thing they're going to change. And at least that might not be the issue. That might not solve anything. But you know that at least by cranking up their FiO2, you know that patient at least getting more oxygen than their need, which might not fix your problem, but make them, you could say, survive for a longer period of time. And you'll get better. At first, when you start off in the ICU, you might just know the basics, like just the numbers, like the rates. And then eventually, once you get better, and don't be afraid to ask questions. That's how you learn, like, hey, why are you making this change? It's not like you're, it's not like you're questioning them. You're just simply doing this as a resource to learn for your own sake, like, hey, why you're adjusting the IE ratio? What what is happening? What's that beneficial for? And then you're gonna start putting the puzzle pieces together, and then you're gonna sound like Peter and Matt here, how they're just like saying this right off the dome about random things and why all this makes sense. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to mention is useful alarms. So if you're in the ICU, you should definitely know how to silence an alarm. So if we're gonna suction a patient, and we're gonna suction out sputum, that's gonna alarm the pressure to hey volumes are low or there's something going on with the vent. Silence that. There's no need for another ICU nurse to run in there to see something's going on. Another thing is just knowing where the 100% F, uh, FIO2 button is. So sometimes we turn the patient to the side or we have to reposition them and their SATs drop. Let's just say at 40%, you click that button automatically for two minutes. You're pushing 100% FIO2 just to help uh, compensate for all the little interventions you're doing with the patient. Yeah. I'll also, we should probably talk a little bit about maybe weaning. What happens Wait. during wean? Yeah. Or what definitely. are the what are the um, the criteria to have a patient su successfully get weaned off the vent? Yeah. So weaning is definitely a big thing we do in, in the in the ICU. Usually it's something. So usually extubation is happening during the day or in the mornings, but night shift is usually responsible for the for some of the weaning at least. Uh, doesn't always work out. But the first thing you want to be able to do is, is look at your patient's ventilator settings and see if they're able to be even weaned. Because if they're on, like Matt said before, if they're on 100% FiO2 and there's weaning protocols, um, it's probably not a good idea to start decreasing, decreasing the sedation, uh, dropping down to 40%. It's going to be a little bit of a process. You might have weaning orders in, but if FiO2 is at 100%, you know off the bat that you can't wean, wean this patient with 100% with FiO2. 
you're gonna need to start with that first degree deoxygenation. And it's gonna take some time because like I said, we don't drop them from 100% to 40% off the bat. You drop them to 80%, let them hang out there for like an hour, see how they're doing. If the stats are still holding up, then you wean her further. So you're basically weaning one thing at a time. And then once you have them down to that 40%, then you could maybe think about starting to wean some of the, the, the sedation. You could possibly do a spontaneous breathing trial. Or if you're still kind of unsure, maybe the SAT was 100% on 100% FiO2. But now you see your O2 SAT at like 94, 93 on 40%. And you're still like, mm, I wonder what's going on. You could also do, do an ABG. Nothing wrong with that just to kind of double check yourself. You should still be good for the most part. But if you're kind of in about numbers and want to be super safe, you could do an ABG BG that, then. Uh, but after you get them down to like a good FiO2 level, then like I said, bring down the sedation, give them like a spontaneous awakening trial, make sure they could initiate some kind of breathing on their own. Because if they're at 40% FiO2, an event is programmed at 12 rates, a rate of 12 a minute, and now you're off sedation and the patient is still breathing at 12, means they're not taking any kind of initiative to breathe on their own. That could be a sign that, hey, maybe we should wait a little bit longer for the sedation to, to clear out their system before we move any further. Because you're, if your patient isn't initiating any kind of breathing, then guess guess what? If you stop the ventilator, they're not going to be able to breathe. So that's like the next, next thing to take into account. It's very important. Yeah, and, and all your facilities are going to have protocols to facilitate a weaning trial. What are the parameters? So some places, if your patient is on pressors, that automatically excludes the patient from having a wean because they're hemodynamically unstable. Mm -hmm. As they're doing this weaning trial, there's also a criteria to look out for. If the respiratory rate increases maybe above like 10 breaths, so if the rate was 20, now it's 30, they have an increased work of breathing, you might fail them. If they get hypotension, if they get start getting sweaty, um, if they're maybe not following commands, so if a patient is not there cognitively, how are, there, how are they supposed to do that weaning trial themselves? Mm. So we definitely cut out the sedation, making sure they're there. Hey, can you squeeze my hand and kind of go from there? And then what happens is if we are ready to wean this patient, we flip a switch. So let's just say they're an SIMV. They go into something called like spontaneous breathing. We call it CPAP, but it's not really CPAP. It's just a setting where they're still getting pressure control, but they're breathing on their own. They're not getting... Like a, a set respiratory rate, yes. Yeah. And what happens is 30 minutes, if they last, they do good. They meet the criteria, will uh, get a blood gas. And based on that blood gas, the intensivist is going to make that decision on if they're ready. Mm -hmm. So as long as they're 40% and have this other criteria, they're ready to go. Now, with C19, I feel like it got a lot more confusing because when I started, okay, criteria is met ready to go now you have some patients that have a trach they're off pressors they're at 40 percent fio2 with only five of peep even four of peep when i had my patient last time but now hey this guy's lung compliance is so bad because he was in the hospital for a whole month with c19 his peak pressures are so high we can't even unsedate this guy because if he starts doing a breathing trial he's just going to get a pneumo so yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not black and white, it's yeah. tough, but it's nevertheless just exciting being an ICU nurse because you just learn about so many different patient experiences and you could implement that to your scope of practice. And winning is definitely a collaborative process, so the respiratory therapist might see problems quicker than, than you can because this is very important to take into consideration the respiratory therapist's opinion on the situation because they work directly with weaning and they probably know more about ventilators and the whole process than than a typical 
uh, nurse, even in the ICU. So if the if the um, respiratory therapist sees something off with your patient, then be like, hey, um, he's not doing very well. I'm gonna put him back on full support. They're gonna notice these, these things ahead of time and before you because they're so accustomed to it. And if you're not sure what's going on, respiratory therapist is gonna be your best friend. You can ask them, be like, hey, um, my patient is breathing at 20. He was breathing at 14. Is, is this okay? Respiratory therapist is gonna be like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, it's just fine. We'll let him, we'll let him do do his thing, um, and see how see how he does. So yeah, like if you're nervous, you're not sure. Hey, is my patient doing good? Is he doing well? Is he still like, is he still a candidate for 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 weaning? Should I put him back on full support? If you're not sure, don't just take like a leap of faith and just make decision on your own. Ask respiratory therapist. Ask a physician. Respiratory therapist is gonna be more accessible because they're gonna be most likely on the unit and like a phone call away. They're gonna be your number one number one go to if you think if you're unsure of something. Ask their opinion. Ask questions. And even if they if you know you may be wearing weren't fully paying attention to your patient and respiratory therapist was in the room majority of the time just handling business and they tell you hey i put your patient back on full support ask why be like oh what happened and they could be like hey they could be like here's respiratory rate was you know high his heart rate i noticed was 120 so i just put him back on full support and you're like okay now now i understand that hey he was tachycardic so we had we had to put him back they're gonna explain this to you because because trust because trust me they want this patient to succeed and they're they're taught on about the proper parameters and they're going to know more than you so just don't be shy to ask yeah i also wanted to mention that if you have high secretions your patient has bad pneumonia you might not extubate as well because that is a problem of maintaining your airway and you might get reintubated for not being able to clear secretions so that's one thing and then if you're wondering like okay how does this tube get removed so literally we used to do this during like seven o'clock now, I feel like it's always a day shift thing. We don't extubate because a night shift never has like NP or PA, but physician comes in or just RT, they deflate the cuff, they yank the cuff out or they yank the whole E2 tube out with the cuff and they usually slap a patient on BiPAP or maybe just a nasal cannula depending on how the respiratory rate is. Mm-hmm. And voila, you have an extubated patient yeah. and they're gonna be ready to get downgraded after they feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the patient might be still a little loopy Afterwards, it might not fully be with them because of the sedation that they were on, especially if they were on a lot of sedation. But as long as they're breathing on their own, they're they're going to be fine. Usually, we keep them in the ICU for maybe like another night just for closer monitoring, or unless it was like a a surgical procedure where they were just intubated for like maybe four hours, then you just just pull up, pull it, and ship them out. But if it's a patient that was intubated for a long time and you're still kind of not sure on how they're going to respond, it's always good to keep another another day or another night in in the ICU just because we want to avoid uh, having them intubated again and of course the icu there's patient ratios of two to one ideally so you keep a little bit of a closer eye on your patient so i like to keep them one more day just for observation yeah. solid and solid that's a, episode yeah. here with ventilators and yeah, a little, little rundown i hope you all learned a lot this is a this is a very informative uh, informative lesson for us as well i feel like i definitely learned a lot about ventilator settings and sometimes i take ventilators for granted just because you have that support of the respiratory therapists and they kind of handle it, especially in the ICU. But it's always have a good refresher um, on why we use certain settings or how certain settings actually affect the patient and what do you actually change when you change the settings. So it was a nice refresher. I think preparing for this episode, I, it was a, just like you said, great refresh. I learned so much about some information I didn't know about, like flow rates. I haven't looked at them as well. So I definitely found value in this mm-hmm. podcast. And if you guys found value in this podcast, give it a five stars. Go share with your loved ones or somebody that's in nursing because... That motivates us to keep on doing what the hell we're doing. So thank you so much. We'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye.